Renaissance Online Radio, clear for departure. You're listening to Renaissance Online Radio Podcast. This is episode number 10. Our topic today is automation in mission-critical systems. As you know, I like to talk about anesthesia, and I like to talk about aviation. They have a lot of things in common. One thing that aviation has that anesthesia has not had to this point is autopilot. We dream about it. We wish we could have a switch we could turn on where we could walk out of the room while anesthesia is being provided and go eat or go pee or whatever, and there's no such thing so far. So why can't we do that? Why don't we have automation in anesthesia to the level that we have in airplanes? In reality, the airplane can fly itself if it is adequately equipped all the way from takeoff to landing. And the, the, the old joke is that an engineer sees the perfect cockpit of the future as one containing one pilot and one dog. The pilot is there to feed the dog, and the dog is there to bite the pilot if he tries to touch anything. So anyway, um, the reality, though, is we have not, in airliners, gotten to the point where we leave the crew at home. There's no replacement for the brain of the pilot yet. On January 15 of 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549, which was an Airbus A320, that's widely known as one of the most automated of all aircraft, departed LaGuardia Airport in New York City en route to Charlotte, North Carolina. There were 150 passengers and five crew on board. Two minutes into the flight, the aircraft flew through a flock of Canada geese. When the event was recognized, the pilot, Captain Chesley Sullenberger, took the controls and for the next four minutes flew an unpowered Airbus from an altitude of about 3,000 feet down to a successful ditching at 150 miles an hour on the Hudson River. Of the 155 people on board, five people sustained serious injuries, 95 people sustained minor injuries, and no one died. If it had not been for a skilled human in the cockpit, the autopilot would not have been able to manage that event successfully. The Airbus series of aircraft were the first to be designed from the ground up to be what is known as fly-by-wire, which means that when the pilot puts an input into a flight control, there is no physical connection between the movement that the pilot makes and the movement of the uh, aileron, elevator, rudder, or engine management um, controls at the, uh, at the other end. Instead, the pilot's input is through a joystick, and it commands the computer to perform whatever phase of operation the pilot desires. 
A story that highlights the perils of automation is the story of Air France Flight 296. Two days after the Airbus A320 was released into operation from brand new back in June of 1988, it did a low-altitude flyby at an air show, gear down in landing configuration. Rather than climbing back into the sky after the low pass, however, the plane did not climb and flew into a stand of trees where it crashed in a big fireball and killed three people on board and injured 50 more. The French government initially blamed the crew, specifically the captain, for pilot error. But as it turns out, the computer, because it believed that the aircraft was in landing configuration, did not allow the power-up to occur that was commanded after the flyby, and therefore the plane could not climb. In recent years, there's been a lot of talk of replacing anesthesia providers with machines. But really, you know, autopilot's great until things go wrong. And if we had such a thing in anesthesia, it would still be labor-saving, but it would not replace the brain of the anesthesia provider. There seems to be no limit of ways things can go wrong. And so much of what we, the human provider, are trained to do is manage the unexpected. The human brain is very good at prioritizing, very good at finding quick workarounds, just like Captain Sullenberger reverted to his skills of flying gliders. As it turns out, he was a glider pilot. Uh, along with being an airline captain. And he was able to use those skills to continue to control the aircraft all the way to point of impact. In the same way, an anesthesia provider will always be the most important piece in the providing of anesthesia. The Da Vinci surgical robot has gotten a lot of press lately for some bad outcomes that have occurred. But it's really not a robot. It's called a robot, but a robot is somewhat autonomous. The Da Vinci is simply a, an extender of human skills. There is still a surgeon sitting, in a control, sitting at a control point and actually making all of the movements that the Da Vinci robot is translating into even smaller movements so that, uh, so that ties can be made and things can be done in a very small space. It's actually quite fascinating technology, but the most important part of the Da Vinci system is the surgeon. In the same way, any automation in anesthesia will still have as its central component a human. To be sure, automation will have its place. Automation is a force multiplier. You have probably heard, or at least if you're older, you have probably heard that to err is human, but to really screw things up requires a computer. And a computer is the, one of the earliest examples in modern times of automation. 
Initially, we used computers for record-keeping purposes. And when compared to paper, on paper, when you screw one thing up, you probably only screwed one thing up. But a wrong keystroke on a computer could delete an entire file, could could indeed delete an entire uh, directory. And so that... uh, that becomes a force multiplier. It can be a, obviously a force multiplier for good and absolutely is when it works. But it can be a force multiplier for chaos when it fails. We are seeing the introduction of more and more technology in anesthesia, in medicine in general, of course, but in anesthesia specifically. Uh, and the automated piece at this point is the uh, collection of data to record for the anesthesia electronic record. So what we used to do in anesthesia is we would have a have what we call the anesthesia record, which was a triplicate or quadruplicate piece of paper on which we would record vital signs every five minutes for the entirety of every case. Now that, of course, is a tedious process and one that a computer is very well suited for. So now we have students who are graduating who have done very few, if any, paper record anesthetics. Unfortunately, the electronic anesthesia record is run by software that occasionally fails. And rather rather than there being a built-in redundancy, The redundancy is a fallback to the paper record. Anesthesia electronic record is just the latest iteration of the electronic medical record, which which has replaced the old charts that we used to use. We used to be able to find paper record of pretty much anything we needed to. If, uh, If no other way, we could physically walk to medical records and pull the chart, the physical chart for a patient and be able to see every event that has been recorded in our system. Now with the current system, we are completely dependent upon ones and zeros, digital recordings of all medical information. And that's great when it works. If you want to see a bunch of frustrated doctors though, let that system go down and watch their reactions. Medicine is all about data. Medicine is all about taking a bunch of information and synthesizing that information into a solution for a given set of problems. And when that data is taken away, it is incredibly difficult to feel that we are providing the best that we can provide to the patient. So that comes back to the topic of mission-critical systems. And so let's talk about what that means. A mission-critical system is a system that is absolutely necessary to, to fulfill a given mission. In aviation, your number one mission is to survive. In anesthesia, your number one mission is to do no harm to the patient. So when we talk about mission critical, we have to first determine what the mission is and then determine 
what items are absolutely necessary. In the aircraft, specifically the airplane, the first and most important thing is the basic structure of the aircraft, specifically the wing and the uh, fuselage and the tail structure, also known as the empennage. The two things that can be done to guarantee as much as possible a successful outcome are, one, to build the best structure you can possibly build, and two, when possible, provide redundancy. Redundancy means that you have a fallback in order to complete the same objective. For example, when a policeman is on patrol and is dependent on his sidearm, his redundancy is that other gun that he might have in his ankle holster or in the back of his uh, shirt. It's his backup weapon. In the aircraft, there's not really redundancy for the wing, unless you're flying a biplane, of course. So you just have to build the daylights out of it so it's as strong as it can possibly be. In a Cessna, uh, I was told when I was in uh, aircraft mechanics school that the structures were all tested to 200% of their uh maximum limit. So, for example, if the plane was rated to 3Gs, the structures were all tested to be able to withstand 6Gs. And that provides not redundancy, but extra strength above and beyond, well above and beyond what is expected. So, you might say that it is very robust. So, what about redundancy? An example of redundancy in Aviation might be the fact that the engine makes its own electricity for the spark plugs. It does not depend on the battery or the generator because it has something called a magneto. And because the magneto is a critical point in the system, you also, uh, you not only have a magneto, you have two magnetos. So each cylinder has two spark plugs and is driven off of two magnetos. Now, part of that is because the magneto is uh, 1920s, 30s technology, or maybe even before that. And they, uh, it, there was not much difference initially between a tractor magneto and an airplane magneto. And yes, they did fail on a very regular basis. Another example of redundancy that is very obvious would be your multi-engine aircraft where you have an engine on each side so that if one fails, you still have another to be used to get you at least further on, if not to your destination. In anesthesia, we have redundant systems that we use. For example, if the provision of a particular drug through an IV is critical to the outcome of the patient's case, we might place two IVs so that we have a backup in case one fails. If our ventilator fails to push air into the patient's lungs during the case, we have our hands. We can flip a switch and squeeze a bag to push air into the lungs. It is easy to see automation and technology in general as a 
cure-all, you might say, for problems in healthcare. But in reality, they can be nothing more than extenders of our own capabilities. And we always have to be mindful of what our outs are, what our escape plan is in case of failure. I like to talk about the examples of anesthesia and aviation, but really these same principles apply to many things. For example, when you're driving, what's your out? What happens if you get caught in a snowbank? What happens at home if there's a snowstorm and you have to be holed up in the house for three, four, five days and Oh, since there was a snowstorm, uh, there was also an ice storm and took the power out, and now you don't have electricity. And so what is redundant in your life? This is what prepping is all about. You know, we hear a lot of people make fun of preppers, but the reality remains. The prepper is simply prepared. He has an out. He has a plan B. And if he's smart, a plan C and maybe even a plan D for pretty much any imaginable situation. It is a mindset. It is not a series of steps so much as it is a worldview of self-sufficiency as opposed to collective interdependency. I've had friends comment to me that, you know, if, if everybody's going to die, I don't want to be the one that survives. But who says that everyone is going to die? What if your own decision today to see the world through the eyes of always be prepared leads to you being the one that makes sure your community doesn't die? We have become so dependent on technology for every aspect of our lives that most people have lost the basic skills to survive without it. Who knows what a washboard is now? You know, it used to be that laundry was done down by the creek with a bar of soap and a washboard. Well, guess what? A washboard still works, even when the power's out. What about cooking over a wood fire. A wood fire will burn even when the power's out. So these are just a few of the most basic skills that I've been happy to note a lot of people have chosen to get back into. But for those who would like to point fingers and make fun at those crazy preppers, you know, someday you might not be making fun of those crazy preppers. That's all we have time for today. We welcome any communication, comments, criticisms, questions, suggestions. You can reach us at renaissanceonlineradio at gmail.com or you can find us on our Facebook page. Just look for Renaissance Online Radio or you can follow us on Twitter. Look for Renaissance R-D-O. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.